Greetings, Rays community. Brent coming in live from the home office in Rhode Island, and I am thrilled to welcome Todd McCubbin, who is the Associate Vice Chancellor for Alumni Relations and the Executive Director of the Mizzou Alumni Association to the show. Welcome, Todd, and how do you fit all that on one business card? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a special card. Not many people get that card, but uh, uh, you know that the world, we have kind of a 501c3 Alumni Association. We're also integrated, so uh, we make it all work. Love it. Well, Todd, last year, one year ago, my understanding is last month you were celebrating your 25th year at Mizzou. Probably not the best month to celebrate the 25th year at Mizzou, but I do look forward to um, to taking a walk down memory lane, recognizing that in a sector where uh, turnover uh, can be challenging and it's, it's hard sometimes to build a career path um, at one institution, you've been really unique in your ability to do that. And so... We'll come back to all of that in, in, in your 25th. Any comments on the 25th celebration? Well, it was a year unlike any other, right, for sure. So I uh, had a lot of great years, but the 25th year was certainly interesting in a lot of, a lot of respects as we all had uh, challenging years last year. Well, uh, let's take, a, a, I guess, a moment and go back in time where uh, I've been enjoying starting my conversations recently with our guests has really been to learn about your own uh, higher education experience. So when you think about, you know, Todd, junior year of high school, odds are you weren't pic picturing yourself someday celebrating your 25th uh, year at Mizzou, but here we are. Um, who was that guy? What was he into? And sort of what led you on your own uh, education path, which I have to admit, I think is unique relative to other guests that we've hosted so far. Yeah, so I think uh, junior year in high school, uh, I was I was a typical probably seventeen year old knucklehead like a lot of guys are at that age, and uh, big into basketball. That was my <laughs> um, that was a big part of my life as well. But I will say that you know at that point, in terms of what I, if I thought about career aspirations and what that looked like, um, I wanted to be the next Jack Buck because uh, that was my Cardinals were my team and. I thought sports broadcasting was the way I wanted to go. Um, and so that's what I kind of set my sights on from a, a journalism or communications type of uh, mode at that point. And so, um, you know, I, I chased that for a while in terms of what I did in school. So it wasn't something that was just a fleeting thought. But uh, that was that was definitely me as a as a junior at Harrisburg High School, one of the smaller schools here in, in rural Missouri. And, uh, and that's that's what I was hoping for at that point. And so as it came time to make a decision about uh, what you do post high school, what was the path? Uh, very different uh, than what I probably thought it was. So, so um, I, uh, like I said, wanted to play college basketball. That was something that I thought I, I wanted to participate in at any level for that matter, but a level that made sense for me and what didn't, didn't materialize with the schools that I had looked at. I had some a division one, small division one opportunities, some division two schools locally. I didn't want to go far away from home. That probably helped me back a little bit from taking that, um, uh, some of those offers. But uh, anyway, I, I took a kind of a hard left turn right before I was just going to go off to college and uh, went to the junior college route, um, which was a, uh, turned out to be one of the best decisions I ever made, not only from a athletic and academic experience, but I met my wife there. She was on the women's team at that time. And so we, uh, that was, you know, obviously a life-changing experience for me. And so 
Uh, Juco was a fun time, probably the highest level basketball that I got a chance to play. I went on to play division two after that, but um, really some, you know, I was telling somebody last night in a story, you know, playing against Latrell Sprewell in college and before he went to Alabama and then on the NBA and some of those type players was, uh, was a lot of fun. And it was a, it was a cool way to do it. And, and, the, and the fit was really good coming from a small high school to go to kind of a medium size junior college and get my feet underneath me academically, socially, uh, certainly athletically. Um, it was the right fit and probably the uh, best decision for me, even though I didn't have that in my mindset until really the last minute. And so I did a little bit of research about Moberly Junior College or Moberly Area Community College, I think, as it's now known. And it looks like uh, it was a, a pretty uh, or has been a pretty epic contender in the JUCO basketball world. And I was trying to piece things together. I know there were some national uh, uh, tournament appearances, and I was trying to figure out if that was your, your last year there or right before you left. So I hope that it was the former, but um, either way, yeah. Fortunately, my two years there, we fell short. Uh, we fell short to the team that had Latrell Sprewell, frankly. So um, we took them as far as we could take them, and they got us, and they went on the national tournament. But they've had a, a great tradition um, there of basketball, and um, it was fun to be a part of that. My coach and I had it played there. He won the national championship. And so, um, you know, there was there was a lot of fans in the house, uh, and that kind of that was what people did on a cold winter's night in Moberly, Missouri, was go to watch the, the junior college play. So great experience, but uh, they, they've got a great tradition there, no doubt. And so in doing that, you actually had to make two college decisions. One is, where do you want to go right out of house, high school? But then immediately, as you land in the JUCO uh, world, you're sort of in the recruiting for what happens after. So what was that experience like? How different was it? Or was it pretty straightforward to, to go to Truman State? Yeah, it was pretty straightforward in that towards the end of my uh, JUCO experience, I, I wanted to keep playing, but at the same time, I wasn't going to compromise on what I wanted to do from a degree perspective. So I wanted to go somewhere that offered what I was looking for, which at the time was journalism, communication type of, of track. And I wanted to go to a really good school. I applied here at the University of Missouri just to come back as a student because of our J school. It's a phenomenal J school. And um, I looked around at some other places and then Truman State entered the picture. It was Northeast Missouri State at the time, as before they changed their name, and had a great reputation academically. It was, you know, just far enough from home, and I loved the coaching staff and the, the guys up there. So that, that made a lot of sense for me to go there and uh, continue my career, both academically and athletically. And so finished up there um, in the early 90s, and then it looks like pretty immediately thereafter decided that um, – there'd be a master's in your future, some continuing ed opportunities. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it's, it's, it's weird there too, because the last place I wanted to go at that point was university of Missouri. Uh, Why? I grew 20 minutes from here, you know, it was home. I, I loved and respect the school, but at that point I'm like, okay, I've been close to home the last four years. I want to go somewhere else. So I'd applied at several schools outside the state. Uh, frankly, Ohio University was this, my first choice for sport management. They have a fantastic program, and everything was looking great there. And then I got deferred, and it had to do with kind of GRE issue. It wasn't anything that I had done. The score was fine. They just got it a little later for their class. It was a very competitive situation. And so they deferred me for a semester till um, January start, which wasn't a bad thing. I was in. It was great. It's where I wanted to go. Um, but I thought, you know, what do I want to do for six months here or three or four months before I go there? And, and, and while I was home, I came to Mizzou and they had a program. It was a newer program. 
and ended up landing a, a grad assistantship. And so then all of a sudden the decision became really easy. It's like, well, now I don't have to pay to go to grad school. And, um, and so uh, it just kind of lucked into it. And, and, and that's really, you know, started here and I've never left. So it was, a, it was a great stroke of luck in a lot of ways. So you didn't intend to go there uh, for the grad program. Weren't even really that uh, focused on the specific uh, degree uh, that was new there. Uh, and here we are 26 years later. So it had to be relatively quick upon getting settled into your grad assistant work and then the coursework associated with the, the degree um, that the world of advancement got on your radar, which is probably not always the case. Um, so tell me more about what the catalyst was to really explore this career path right out of your master's program. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's serendipity in a lot of ways. I can't wish it was more than that, but as I'm finishing up school, um, had a great opportunity to work a couple of years, worked on our athletic department here in Mizzou, really enjoyed the experience I had. I wanted to go that route. I kind of switched over when we'd be in athletic administration. Those departments were really growing around the country at that time. I thought I could make a difference there. And um, as I'm graduating, um, I'm, I'm still um, uh, dating my wife. We're, we're still uh, headed down that path. And she had just got into physical therapy school here at Mizzou. So at that point, I didn't want to go very far from Columbia. I want to stay close to her, which was a very smart move. And at the same time, um, I was applying for jobs. And a couple of them were in athletics here at Mizzou. And one, because a, a, a guy who was the alumni director here saw me in the student union and said, hey, we got a job at the Alumni Association. We're thinking about doing some engagement around athletics. Why don't you apply for it? And I, I'm like, who is this guy? And what's he talking to me about? I don't even know who this person is. And what is the Alumni Association? So in probably one of the worst uh, interviews in our Alumni Association's history, I came in here and gave it my best shot. And um, after having all three of those experiences, I remember thinking, I even told uh, my wife at the time, like, I think that Alumni Association job's a better gig than these two athletic jobs that I really kind of trained for. And um so when, when kind of offers started happening, we started thinking through it, um, I took a shot, took a chance. And uh, that, like I said, was 26 years ago. And, and, and really what I loved the most about it, just to cut to the chase, was is that athletics was great. But, but what I found out was I was really a fan of athletics. And in athletics, it's tough to be a fan. You, you, you don't get to watch the games. Not that you can't, but it's just hard. It's different. And in the alumni world, one, I got to do a lot of things before games and be able to enjoy the athletic you know, competitions and games. But also, I just got a wider um, lens on the university from the academic side, all the different schools and colleges and disciplines, uh, build relationships across the board and not just pigeonholed in one space. So, so I figured that out pretty quick within the first year that this was just really a great fit for me um, overall because of what the university had meant for me and my family. And... I imagine when you took the role, sounds somewhat intuitive, but you hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about the world of advancement if it was going by that term back then. Um, you know, probably didn't have a great understanding of the business of uh, alumni engagement or annual giving. Um, and so I imagine there was some sort of drinking from the fire hose. Um, early on, I mean, what what stands out among those kind of early, you know, year or two? Anything? Maybe did you feel phased at all, or or was it more validating that it was the right path uh, for you? Yeah, that's a it's, you put it in a really kind way. I'll put it in a more blunt way. I had no idea what I was doing, man. I mean, I um, 
I luckily had good people around me. I had a couple of senior directors, uh, a couple of uh, really great mentor ladies who have been here for a while and been through a lot of different changes here. I had an um, executive director at the time, a boss who was very creative and a go-getter and would take me along for every ride possible and, and let me take chances, which was fantastic. Um, but, but you're right. I mean, I didn't have a feel for the entire picture of it. And, um, but once I got into it and started seeing um, some of the difference we could make uh, from a relationship standpoint and how Mizzou existed in this community or that community or, or this space with uh, school and college, whatever it is, and how we could help maybe you know, thread some things together to support the university, uh, it, it got my blood pretty quick because uh, I thought it was um, something that was worthwhile work, but it's still, it was fun. And it's something that I seemed like I was, you know, getting along pretty well with, or I was doing it well. But at first, um, I'm sure that I was uh, not, not doing anything right. But uh, luckily, I had some good people around me who just continued to, you know, um, you know invest in me and uh, teach me along the way. And, and, and that, that includes volunteers, too. We had some amazing volunteers that I'm still in touch with that were very, very instrumental in me. Um, just continuing to hang in there and just seeing where this journey kind of kind of got going and where it ended. You came up the ranks in the engagement side and now work in an integrated model. And I know you're a big believer in the uh, importance of balancing the short-term revenue needs with the long-term relationship building. And you made a comment in your pre-interview uh, questionnaire that uh, you love when a large gift comes in you'll sometimes go in and understand, you know, to better understand that donor life cycle and almost inevitably find out that there was, you know, early engagement or early alumni association membership, which really does speak to um, that intersection, but it is a real tension. And I know you've got a great network of folks in the CAAE community and beyond uh, that have had to deal with some of the, the, the sort of uh, defense of alumni relations, um, if you will. So I'd just be curious to kind of understand when in your career did you start to really see that linkage, even if it was anecdotal, um, and kind of what's your impression on how the profession of alumni relations has evolved over the last couple of decades? Yeah, well, I will say this. Uh, I think there was a, for the first few years there, and even as I got into be involved as a fellow through CAE, which was a tremendous experience and get a chance to meet some real giants in the industry, um, there was a lot of debate at that time as, are we even a profession, right? I mean, what, what, are, what are we really doing here as a whole? And I think we've answered that you know, question of the several years ago in terms of how this works going forward. But um, yeah, that is a tension, the, the long-term versus the short-term uh, type thing. And again, short-term sometimes in higher education is not what you would normally think about. If you're thinking about campaigns that last seven, eight, 10 years, that's very, that's very long-term in a lot of you know, businesses. I understand that. But, but when you look at it from an alumni relations standpoint, um, I, I try to always explain to folks is that while we wanna be super helpful and involved and engaged in the campaign and help it succeed in every way possible, um, you know, a lot of times one of the more important roles we play in any campaign is maybe the work that some of our uh, programs and people have done, you know, 20, 30 years, 40 years prior to that. And that's really, really important. And I, I think a lot of vice presidents um, certainly get that now. I'm not saying the pressure to perform year to year with goals and objectives doesn't get to you and you don't lose sight of that a little bit. I think that's natural, frankly. But I, I do believe that um, it's something that it's, it's good to have 
um, our team thinking through long-term strategies and also short-term from a perspective of even how it works like on a donor pyramid. You know, when I bring people through, we go through orientation and I explain this to all of our staff members, whether they're frontline fundraisers or prospect development or, or even our gift processors or our team, is that when you think about our work as to put it on a gift pyramid, I really look at the base of that pyramid with alumni relations, uh, annual giving, you can even throw donor relations in there and then probably marketing communications. You know, our teams can really own the base of that pyramid. And, um, and, and we wanna see people continue to move up levels of the pyramid, whether that's giving or volunteerism, whatever that is, but it's our job to make sure we have a strong base to, to build upon uh, from year to year, from five-year term, from a 10-year term, and then maybe for an ever term as well. So it's something that um, I, I want to know your role. I guess I got that a little bit from my sports background is that being on a team with five guys out there, not everybody can be the shooter. Not everybody's going to be the rebounder, but you got to know your role and how you can help your team win. And I think it's important that, that we know that. And it's not a limited role. I mean, we close gifts here too. Uh, we're involved with things on the major gift side as well. Um, in the campaign, but but more you know, generally, we are involved in a role of base level type of work, which is a, a little longer time horizon than a than a campaign would be. Have there been any moments along the way where you felt, I don't know, maybe some validation where you can link alumni engagement or alumni relations activity to be that sort of top of funnel beginning of the relationship that then does materialize in hard revenue dollars that sometimes are hard to link back to well it was that one event that she came to at you know this chapter that then you know put the relationship on our radar and you know fast forward seven years there's a million dollar gift i mean are you able to connect the dots that clearly ever or maybe the donors do it for you when they sort of share their perspective on the journey most of the time, it's our donors are able to share that themselves, the stories that have impacted their experience with Mizzou from a philanthropy perspective. I will say, though, that, um, you know, I used to spend a lot more time when people would make a major gift, maybe looking back through their history and seeing kind of where they started, especially from a giving perspective, since we track a lot of that. Sometimes from a volunteer perspective, we have that as well. But, you know, now that I've been here a little while, sometimes I can even remember back to what that was or even when they were a student here on campus. And what they were involved with and um, you know we have several folks now that whether it's a part of our board of curators here at Mizzou and or um, major gift perspective or head lead volunteer roles in a lot of ways you know, I can remember back when they were a student uh, involved with us in some form or fashion here and that was kind of a spark you can tell and um, that's that's a cool thing to be able to see that from a you know, 26 year time uh, time frame at this point um, but uh, it, is, it is very gratifying to be able to see the impact. And it's not about me. It's not about the association as a whole. It's their experience with Mizzou. But to play a part in that, um, to help the places make this place a little stronger, uh, it, is a, it is very cool to be able to think about from time to time. Let's talk a little bit about those 26 years through a couple of lenses. One, let's talk uh, technology. And then maybe two, we'll talk economic cycles. Did you have an email address your first day at work at Mizzou? I didn't have a computer. I mean, I had a mainframe that I could access. That changed pretty quickly, but I didn't even have a, yeah, no email address. You have like a desk with like leather bound books and folders. I mean, what, what are we talking about here? Was, uh, we had a mainframe we could access, but you know, a lot of the work that we did was certainly via phone. And that, that changed in a pretty short time frame. but I don't remember the, the desk I sat at and it was, um, 
know, we had we had cards and that sort of thing. I was handed, here's your chapter contacts. It was kind of like an index file, right, with that information on there. And so a lot of phone calls and um, visits, you know, road time and that sort of thing. But um, very different than uh, when I pull up my Evertrue app today. Let's put it that way. So, so with the visits, was it an atlas or was it like uh, just a map or what were we working with? Go on the visits and such? Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, you know, it was it was events and activities, or you know, we're going to have a visit with the, you know, a lot of times what I did the first year or two is I wanted to make sure to get to all my different chapter uh, and have set down meals with them, talk with them, break bread, make sure that you know I understood kind of what the lay of the land was in their space, and uh, you know, it's that it was very much like a donor visit, except it was a volunteer visit, right? And yeah. so, um, so we would spend time in that community and maybe meet with a couple of different people that were board members and get a feel for it, but you'd have a day in Kirksville, Missouri. You'd have a, a weekend in Atlanta to talk with that group about what's going on. In fact, one of the first um, volunteers I met with with our Atlanta chapter is our president of our alumni association today. So we've had that relationship pretty much the entire time I've been here, and she's had a lot of great roles. And so um, it's, it's kind of crazy how it kind of comes full circle. So you got into the role sort of right before email, like right on the cusp of the internet happening. And does that mean as a young guy on the team, people were looking to you to figure that stuff out the same way that right now your counterparts are looking at young folks on the team to explain TikTok and Instagram reels? Or, I mean, what was it like kind of being on the cusp of some pretty profound technology adoption waves that you, you might not have even seen coming when you took the role? Yeah, my staff would laugh at me for saying I was any kind of early adopter, probably for that perspective. But I was around the office at that time when we got into more of the PC world, if you will, and um, email became more of a prevalent opportunity. Some of those mentors that I used to work with, um, they they didn't use that. They didn't become one became very proficient, one did not, and um, they both were successful. But it's just the way it worked in terms of how that went. So yeah, I was. You know, once the email thing started happening, uh, it, was a, it was a game changer in a lot of ways. A lot of our budgets or things we did for alumni groups and such were based on, you know, mailings, you know, because that's right. like an event. And I can't remember the last time we did a mailing for an event here in terms of a chapter event uh, here. We do maybe one or two a year. All of it's email based now at this point. So it just changed the game in terms of how we we're able to scale our operation and communication perspective with our alums and such. And, um, yeah, I, I probably was uh, one of those folks that spent more time on email and certainly documented and using different forms and such on a PC. Because, frankly, I had a PC before I worked here. I, I mean, I had one at home. I used it in college, right? So it was no big deal to me. We just didn't have one uh, assigned to me here. Yeah. The, so um, I, was, I was ready for that. I mean, the reason I bring it up is because that was a, a shift um, where, you know, it happened pretty quickly when you look back at the arc of, of sort of technology adoption, mobile happened under your leadership pretty quickly, um, but nothing happened as quickly as what we've experienced over the last 18 months with the Zooms of the world, the Microsoft Teams, the Slacks. Like when you think about how the adoption of email was sort of optional, even by leaders of an organization, right? Adoption of, uh, you know, different um, mobile platforms was somewhat optional. Um, nobody really had a choice over the last 12 months. And so I'm just curious to kind of get your perspective from where you sit now, thinking about those different waves that you lift through and how they 
impacted your ability to build relationships with your and among your alumni community, but also with your staff? Um, what stands out over the last 12 months? That's a great point. And that's what we talked about a lot with our team is that some of these um, technologies we've been able to utilize, everyone was forced into that that funnel, if you will. So everybody had to get on board somehow, some way, whether you you know, were using it to work, whether you're using it to see your grandkids every once in a while on the weekend, whatever that may be, everybody was forced into that. So that kind of presses, you know, puts a little presses the gas down on where we can use this and how we can move forward with this more and more. So, um, you know, I was very proud. And, and I think a lot of colleagues around the country, you know, some of the, uh, you know, adaptations they made during this time frame for technology to find out how to recognize award winners, to have, you know, some sort of events and activities. We were able to engage probably, we'll see what the numbers end up saying at the end of the year, probably more people than we were in a normal year, which is kind of crazy. And so how can we take that and what does a hybrid environment look like? So we know we're still going to go face to face, but maybe there's some areas, maybe there's some programming. There are, well, frankly, there are areas of programming that make a lot more sense with this sort of technology to move forward. Um, you know, we were just talking today and I don't know if we'll do this. So this is probably could be cutting room floor material. Um, you know, there's some things out there from just from a budget perspective that don't make a lot of sense. And being an SEC school, there's a lot of engagement around athletics and some expectations that we are doing certain things that, you know, football games or away games or whatever that may be. And I will say that there are times when that makes a lot of sense from an engagement perspective. It's not necessarily a dollar and cents perspective, but it makes sense. However, we've had to cut back on that just because it's, it's tough to travel every weekend and do all those sorts of things to send staff to do events and activities. You know, maybe there's a way we can use uh, this sort of uh, technology to engage folks on a a weekly basis over and above or in partnership with athletics or maybe another vendor to try to have people that, that can do that. Because while we may be going to play and in Georgia, you know, we might have a lot of alums in California or big Tiger fans. They're not going to Georgia. And so how do we able you know, maybe right. put everybody together with folks uh, at a certain time to make that happen. So that's just one example. I know, you know, there's been some, you know, Tennessee actually has figured this out. My buddy, buddy Dwayne Wiles there, they did a great job last year. We're kind of looking at some of the modeling they did. And there's probably others too. So, so it opens us up and we really kind of had to force the conversation over it because, you know, as we started to come back into a more normal environment, what I'm seeing is, is plans and budgets kind of going back to pre COVID type of work. Cause that's what they know. And, you know, that's fine. But at the same time, you know, we need to think about what does the hybrid look like or what's the pivot look like? that allows us to um, engage more people through these events with that option, but at the same time, having an in-person sort of experience too. So uh, it's gonna be a little bit of a challenge. Uh, I thought there was a great comment made yesterday that everybody had a really good plan when we were sort of in-person type of world, if you will. Everybody built a pretty good plan and got to a pretty good place, it was all virtual. Now what's it look like when you start putting those things together and trying to overlap each other? And that's gonna be, not only alumni relations issue, but I think all businesses, organizations have to keep. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and look, the default answer right now is hybrid, right? And what hybrid means could be different, but what it can't mean is that we have to do twice as many things with the same amount of staff. Now we've got to do all of the virtual stuff, which is in some ways more efficient, but it doesn't mean it's easy to create a compelling virtual experience and then if it means we have to go back to our event schedule from fiscal year 2019, that isn't going to work. And so I think, um, you know, seeing where all of that settles out, especially I would imagine for institutions like yours where, you know, I was just looking to, to refresh my memory, but 
you've got um, a couple hundred thousand alumni, but it's not like they're all in one city. You've got a pretty geographically distributed community. You've got big pockets in Chicago, Dallas, Denver, New York, DC, LA, and so forth. And the long tail is pretty long. And so I would imagine by way of some of the virtual work that you all have done over the last 12 months, you were able to reach people in pockets where there's never going to be a football game. There's never going to be a basketball game. So as we pivot back to that sort of hybrid in-person component, how do we make sure we don't leave those people behind who maybe happen to live in Los Angeles, but it doesn't mean that they don't love you just because they can't go to Columbia all the time. 100%. That's exactly right. And it's something that it's a tension that we're, you know, right now I say the word hybrid. I can't, I don't know if I know the definition of hybrid at this point. We, you know, a year from now we may figure out, okay, that's really what hybrid meant in some form or fashion. Right now we're, it's sort of this nebulous term. We're trying to envision what it looks like and how it really can roll out when you have some in-person function, you have some, some virtual function or whatever that looks like. So, you know, I, I will say this is that, um, you know, we can be very cyclical in our work, and that's a, that's a good thing to a certain extent. However, one of the things that I've enjoyed about this time period, I don't know if everybody's enjoyed it, but I have, maybe because I'm weird that way, is, you know, I kind of like the fact that it got us out of the time to make the donuts mentality we were in. And, we're, you know, while we're still going to have traditional events and activities, I like that we're having bigger conversations about, yeah, homecoming's great if you're in Columbia on homecoming. Totally. Right? And so how do we think about what a broader experience could be? And I don't know that we'll have the answers right out of the gate, but this forced, right. us, forced a lot of people who aren't comfortable thinking in that space into that space. So I think that's a good thing overall. Yeah. And I think there's also some risk that it's like, well, let's live stream homecoming. So it sort of is just a terrible experience for remote participants. Um, but it's kind of, you know, the path of least resistance versus for the majority of our population who will probably never come to a homecoming, what are the experiences we could create that they might find compelling, interesting, relevant? And it might have nothing to do with football. Maybe it's got everything to do with football. I mean, you know, we do a pep rally. We've done pep rallies for a long time. Has anybody done one where the head coach is now on doing sort of live chat Q&A with the global fan base? I'm sure somebody's done that. I haven't heard of stories like that yet. But that's the sort of thing that I think would actually be really, really compelling um, and should be a part of fan engagement or alumni engagement going forward. Yeah, I think so. And it's also opened up access. You talked about the football coach. You know, we had some virtual events with special guests, if celebrity alums, if you will, or folks. Frankly, we would never be able to get never to talk. And they gave us, you know, an hour of their time and you got to ask questions and and, and so we were able to kind of jump the shark with that. And I think that's something we continue to, you know, to look at and think about ways to engage those individuals, but also help us engage other folks. And so, you know, we were able to pull people closer and, and uh, now it's just going to come down to seeing how it settles out. But you're right. It's not about just the live stream version, which, you know, I think we talked about pre-COVID is, oh, we could do this. And now we look and go, yeah, that would have been a really terrible experience. We would never want to do that. So now we have some sense of what the production value needs to be to make it worthwhile. And now we got to try to live up to that. And so, um, but the staffing uh, situations are, are important. Um, I don't know that you could talk to one of my peers around the country right now. And again, this is not saying anything about their teams and say, okay, are you built the way you need to be built to deliver what you need to be delivered today based on what we went through? Um, 
Probably not. I mean, I'm not personally built to maybe deliver some that sort of stuff. So we're all learning as we go. And um, that's something that's going to take a little time to catch up with, um, I think, overall. But again, change is good into it, but it gives us certainly a bigger platform for engagement than we maybe have ever thought about, which is a good thing. I mean, in a certain regard, coming full circle, um, you know, wanting to be the next Jack Buck. I mean, that's not sort of the wrong perspective to have as we think about creating more of a media platform, more of a sort of, right, how do I bring fans into the stadium, um, but also, you know, but recognize that not everybody is going to be able to to make the trip to St. Louis and, and, and still wants to feel that. I mean, there is a little bit of that I think needed in, in the sector right now. Yeah. People are, when we set up our MIZ talks, which was our virtual series over the course of the first part of the year, we, we, we did about seven or eight or nine of those things back to back and they were great. And we, you know, we talked about how we're going to do them and who we're going to get to host them and, you know, trying to coordinate a host. And I just said, you know what, forget that. I'll do it. I'll figure out a way to host it. I've, I've done a lot of that, but I can figure it out. And, uh, um, and, and, and you're right. So I was, I was able to use a little of the Jack Buck that I never thought I would use and who knows how good it was, but it definitely, uh, it, it kept us out of trying to find a host to do it. I can deliver the message the right way. And, uh, from a university perspective and alumni association perspective, and you're right. We've had to, a lot of our peers have had to become sort of that person, if you will, around the country to, to be able to bring that, that programming to people's homes. You've mentioned your peers a few times, and I would be remiss if I didn't give you a chance to give some shout outs either to the CAAE community, which is where we first met, or, um, you know, some of the other folks who I know have been great mentors to you in the advancement and alumni engagement space. Yeah, I, I have to admit, you know, as a, growing up as a, a Council for Alumni Association executive, I was a fellow. I was fortunate enough to be kind of brought into that group as a fellow as an assistant executive director at Mizzou, I learned so much of that process, and and we have flourished. That group has flourished during this time frame of monthly kind of chats or meetups. We were able to kind of talk through these issues that no one's faced before. I mean, when you got an issue that Doug Dibbert's never faced before at North Carolina, you probably found an issue that no one's faced because he's, he's been around and faced a lot of them. So that group has been uh, instrumental, and I just, you know, really appreciate the leadership of Hoops Wampler at Penn for what he's done to be the president through this time and uh, kind of get us through a weird time frame overall. And then the other group that I lean on a lot is our group that we have with our Southeastern Conference colleagues. So our, we call it our alumni professionals of uh, Southeastern Conference. Our executive director group is pretty tight knit. We spend a lot of time commiserating as well. And so uh, some of those folks just did some tremendous work and uh, it was really a pleasure to be able to pull that group together several times to to talk through and we're all going through a little different things, different states were going through, you know, different lockdowns and what we were doing and rules and such. Some of my peers never left their office during this time. Some still aren't back in their offices. And so it's been great to have a group that we all can lean on. And that's one of the special things about really our profession. You know, it's interesting. I've heard many anecdotes um, early on in the pandemic. I was catching up with Brian Hastings, who's the CEO of the University of Nebraska Foundation. And Brian was sharing that you know, they did uh, some sort of Zoom event for their trustees or, or leadership boards that typically would have been in person and that they had record attendance, right? And, and this was definitely a time when nobody had anything going on, but uh, record participation. And it sounds like, you know, and I heard that anecdotally where advisory boards that would meet once every six months and it was hard to get participation 
would now have everybody show up. And it sounds like even within your professional kind of colleague groups, CAE, the SEC group, that your engagement was streamlined and accelerated by way of embracing some of these same technologies that you're wrestling with. How do we use them in our own community work? Yeah, I, in a lot of ways, as I've told our staff, um, I've not traveled for really much of anything. And, um, and I feel like I've had more professional development this year and maybe never felt closer to colleagues than this year. So what does that mean for the Todd McCubbins of today, the folks that are earlier in their career where I, you know, you did, I'm sure over the course of, of years and case conferences and peer groups and so forth, build those, ho- those relationships in the hotel lobbies and at the, you know, vendor halls and whatnot. Um, does that come back? I mean, you, you know, you're thinking about budget right now, or, or, or do we just really lean into professional development, especially at a campus where, you know, it's not the cheapest to fly from Columbia, Missouri to, you know, key hubs to, you know, to do some of the traditional professional development activities? That's a great question. It's going to be interesting to watch how that works. We're, we're talking about that from our perspective as well, even from our board. But I believe that um, I believe it'll come back in some way, maybe not to the full extent that it was before. Uh, you know, I because I, I, I think we've proved we can really deliver some great content and also have great relationships online. Now, some of that started and we kind of faced the same thing with our team here is that we were able to stay pretty close knit, but we didn't have any turnover. And so when you start having turnover and say you're a new member of CAE or a new member of, you know, our SEC group and you've never met anyone, you've been in a room with them, you know, can you get the same sort of experience or that same connected connectivity without having that personal experience? I think the, the you know, I think the uh, news is still out on that. I'm not sure if that's the case, but I, so I think there'll be some opportunities for face-to-face, but, but yeah, I think people are going to look at their budgets, go, Hey, look, you know, if they're going to offer some virtual things that I can set here and maybe include more people, that's even going to be a better thing. Um, CAE, for example, I know is uh, some of their meetups to where other staff members can be a part of that. Well, that's not something any other staff members have ever been able to participate in. Right. Great for them as well. So um, I do think that it's been um, it's a game changer and uh, I, it'll be interesting to see how it kind of pops back overall. But and then how do we take that to where we're doing it? You know, as I look at our road team that we have, it really goes out and spends time with our alumni chapter as well. You know, how how important is it that they're at those events or not? Uh, maybe it is. Maybe it's not as, as important. Maybe they can have a closer relationship with their chapter leaders just by doing a lot more of this sort of thing, uh, you know, via Zoom or, or Teams or such and having more frequent conversations rather than waiting for those visits. And so um, we're all sort of learning our way through this, no doubt. So as you think about the next uh, 12 months with hopefully some stability and and fewer curveballs coming our way uh, than in the last 12 months, what are you excited about? Um, You know, what are you uh, nervous about as as it relates to fiscal 22 and beyond? Yeah, I think excited about um, just kind of to see how this, for lack of a better term, how this definition of hybrid develops and evolves. Uh, how it's able to, you know, allow us to scale from an engagement perspective. And we've really embraced the case engagement survey in terms of what that looks like in those four key areas that are important for us. And so we're looking at all four of those and thinking through those. So so to me, you know, that that's that's new and I get excited by new at times with how we can how we can grow from that space. 
I think the nervous piece is, um, you know, just from a staff perspective, I think it's going to be super competitive in the market. It already is super competitive. I think people are figuring out that they can, you know, they can work from anywhere uh, for anybody. And, and so uh, if you're in more of a traditional environment, which we are, you're going to be more susceptible to losing team members. We have natural turnover as it is anyway. And so how much harder are those jobs going to be to replace or not? Um, you know, I think that's something that, you know, talking to a lot of different, whatever industry is just a staffing concern right now, no matter where it is, I think that's going to get into advancement. It already is here. We just came out of a campaign like right before the, right as the pandemic was in full force. Normally after a campaign, you have a lot of turnover anyhow. And, and so how you're able to refill and, and, and go forward uh, is going to be important. So I think just the staffing piece to me, as we try to go from zero to hundred in the next couple of months, it's going to be important. Um, and then people just where they're at, you know, socially, mentally coming out of this. I, I think to underestimate that and to think that's not a real thing is, is, is not very smart. Um, you know, there was a lot of soul searching that went on by a lot of individuals during this time for a lot of reasons. And, and that those were all important. And so knowing that there's that sort of a um, culture out there, that's not something you just turn off overnight. And so we yeah. very, uh, very, very smart about how we, uh, continue to build our culture and understand what everyone's kind of gone through and, and hopefully ease them back into um, to work here uh, in more of a traditional manner this year. It's interesting you bring up the sort of team retention component. There was a Texas A&M professor that got a lot of press this week who had put forth um, a statement that basically said the great resignation is coming. It was Anthony Klotz. He said the great resignation is coming. When there's uncertainty, people tend to stay put. So there are pent up resignations that didn't happen over the past year, which will lead to a mass exodus of workers. And, um, and there have been a few surveys and, and so forth that seem to indicate that. And, you know, so that's something I'm sure, especially given the um, July one sort of fiscal year cycle that you and your peers will um, be keeping an eye on as, as will we. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's already coming to here. Uh, we've had, several of those opportunities, just more opportunities that are, you know, kind of available right now for folks to move around. And, and so we're seeing that starting to, starting to pop and uh, it's something that we'll have to, um, uh, you know, watch and work our way through and, and, you know, refill with some great people and move forward. But uh, it's definitely, we were due, frankly, we were due for a little bit of that. We had been pretty stable for a long time with some really great people. And, you know, one thing about great people is uh, you may not have them forever. They're going to find other opportunities and, and, and some have, and we're really proud of them. But uh, staff turnovers, you know, relationship business is always a concern. There's no doubt. Yeah. Well, let's close on a uh, on a high note. In in 26 consecutive years uh, at the organization, a lot of change inside and outside uh, the institution. What are the top one or two favorite memories that you reflect on uh, with uh, within the advancement and alumni relations space? Overall or at the zoo? Yeah, overall at the zoo, just moments where you're like, wow, this is happening. This is a, a pretty special moment. Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the things uh, for, for Mizzou, one of the landmark things for here has been um, our move, our conference affiliation move a few years ago from the, you know, Big A, Big 12 to the SEC. Uh, that was a pretty momentous thing for our university for a lot of reasons. And, um, that, that's not disparaging on the Big 12 folks. I got a lot of colleagues that are so good friends and I wish them well, but it was a good thing for our university because it, it was something that um, 
you know, it certainly create a lot of confidence uh, for what we're doing here, both from an athletic perspective, but also academic. And, you know, we were told, we were told, oh, well, you don't know what you're getting into. That's not going to work out so well. It's really difficult. And then, I don't know, two years later, I'm sitting in Atlanta at the SEC championship game, something, you know, uh, as a sports fan, you just, every year it's a calendar event. You look at it and go, man, that, that game is the game, right? That's where you want to be. And, and our team got to play there a couple years in a row pretty quick out of the gate. So that was a big deal for Mizzou as a whole. Um, you know, we set up a, a big conference, uh, kind of a convention center room there. I had no clue how many people were coming. You turn around, and there's 8,000 people that are milling around, you know, having a blast and getting ready for that game. And everybody's just, you know, so proud of the university. So so for me as a whole to this point, that was a um, – that was a special memory, uh, no doubt about that. And then I think just the overall piece of it, uh, you know, I, I was telling, I said earlier that, you know, alumni relations at, at one point, I think we really doubted whether we were um, a profession or not. And I don't know what the definition of that is, but I really feel like that that's something that, you know, during my time in the profession, that's something that changed. And it's a real thing. And it's something that we're bringing, you know, a lot of really talented people into the profession at all these different schools around the country they're making an impact on their universities, on their advancement shops, on the future of higher education. Um, and, you know, I was the, I think I was the eighth employee here at the Missoula Alumni Association. And now we have 30 plus that are doing our work on a daily basis. And, um, you know, <laughs> I have to admit, when I told my dad I wanted to take a job at the Alumni Association, he just looked at me, he's like, why would you do that? You know, you study to do this, this, and this, that, that job's not probably going to go anywhere. And, and I didn't really have a great answer for him. It just felt like the right thing at the time. And of course, it, it's worked out fantastic. And so to be a part of that, uh, that wave, if you will, because I really do think that's been something that's been a big change in, in our um, industry over the last uh, couple of decades. Um, very, very exciting. It's fun to see. And so many great colleagues that have made that happen and, and proud to be just a little bit of piece of that. So Love it. Love it, Todd. Well said. And uh, it has been uh, really a privilege to get a window into your world, into your peer group, and uh, glad to hear that um, those relationships have not only um, remained strong, but even gotten stronger as you've all navigated some of the challenges over the last year. Uh, I will conclude by asking, are you hiring um, within the Alumni Association specifically or um, around the advancement organization more broadly? And if so, what's the best way for folks listening to get in touch? Yeah, absolutely. We are. We have several positions um, within our advancement operation, uh, fundraising to uh, alumni relations positions. And so we'd love to talk to folks who are um, interested in, in coming to Mizzou and, and, and thinking through what, it likes, what it's like to be a Tiger and work in this space for us. So uh, they can uh, just get a hold of me probably is the best thing. And I can put them in touch with our talent management group here on campus. And, and my email address is McCubbin t at missouri.edu um, and they could also you know find me via our website at mizzou.com i'd be happy to talk with anybody and uh, put them in touch and we have a couple of positions in our alumni engagement space we have a position in our market our membership and marketing space and our annual giving space so we're looking to fill some key roles and we'd love to talk to some great people excellent well thank you for sharing also i will i will say todd's active um, and has a great presence on linkedin also on twitter so uh, don't be shy to find him uh, there as well. And um, with that, Todd, I think that we'll wrap up. You know, thank you so much. You're a great friend to many in the space and to me. I really appreciate your guidance over the years uh, and wish you nothing but the best as we all try to figure out what hybrid means. All right. I appreciate it, Brent. Thanks for everything you do and your team does for higher education. Uh, you're, you're more than just a, 
uh, vendor. There's no doubt about it. You're a true partner, and that comes from a great heart, a great Midwestern heart, I'll say as well. So thanks for everything that you uh, do for our profession, my friend. means a lot, Todd. Brent signing off from the home office in Rhode Island. Take care, everybody. Cheers.